Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, hello. Uh, we are now in the midst of a refulgent summer. Uh, and, of course, there's nothing people like more during the summer than politics, right? <laughs> um, but there is. There's a really interesting campaign that's unfolding here, a series of campaigns, uh, the gubernatorial campaign on the Republican side, the primary that will be held August 14th will include five possible choices for a governor. However, if you're not a registered Republican, you won't be able to vote in that primary, no matter how interesting you may find it. And meanwhile, on the other side, Ned Lamont will have a primary campaign against Joe Gannum, the formerly incarcerated mayor of Bridgeport. Um, there are primaries for the under-ticket spots, like attorney general and treasurer and stuff like that. There's um, heated primaries on both the Republican and Democratic sides in the 5th Congressional District. And I'm just not sure really anybody's paying all that much attention to it because it's summer after all. And a little bit later, you'll hear we sent our intern Jason Perez out to find out uh, whether people were really interested in this. And I don't know how the edited thing came back, but I asked him. He goes, well, not really. A lot of them don't really know that there's a primary happening. Anyway, we thought we could make it fun for we thought we thought we could make it uh, interesting for you. And then it turned out we were wrong, so sorry. No, 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 I think we can make it fun and interesting. And a little bit later, we're going to uh, have, and there's nothing more fun than this, have a mathematician <laughs> explain to you. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people are not happy with how voting goes, right? Uh, they're not happy that sometimes uh, the person wins who does not have a majority of the vote, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about how we could vote differently, um, just in, in terms of mathematics, in terms of historical thinking about how voting can be done. How do you have an election where the candidate who has the who is the preference of the majority of voters actually wins. Um, we're also going to take a look at a couple of states where they're experimenting with uh, new forms of voting, Maine and Colorado. That'll be at the end of the show. But we're going to begin the show uh, because when you're 15 years old, I remember when I was 15 years old. Uh, you know, summer was for I would just sit around and. Talk. We didn't have primaries back then, but we'd certainly talk about Connecticut politics a lot. No, we didn't. Uh, but uh, we have a very special uh, 15-year-old guest here. His name is Ryan Anastasio. He runs Raving Ryan, a website about Connecticut politics that includes video interviews with many of Connecticut's political leaders. And when I say many, there are... There's a shorter list of people that Ryan hasn't managed to interview than the long list of people that he has. Uh, he's uh, pretty good at getting access. And so we discovered him. He, he called into the wheelhouse the other day, and I thought, oh, i got to get to know more about this guy. And then he went to summer camp. So we tracked him, <laughs> we tracked him down in summer camp, and here he is now. Ryan, hi. How are you? Hi, Colin. Great to be here. What's the name of your summer camp? William Lawrence Camp in okay. the center of Tuftonboro, New Hampshire. Well, that sounds great. All right. So, and you're a, we should say you're a counselor there, right? Uh, yes, counselor yeah. in training. Counselor, CIT, okay. What are you supposed to be doing right now instead of talking to me? I am supposed to be eating lunch right, uh, oh, eating lunch right now. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just had lunch, came over here. All right. I'm sorry to deprive you of that. All right. So you, you've really done this remarkable thing. You have interviewed, well, I mean, in terms of the gubernatorial f field, you've interviewed pretty much uh, everybody except Mark Boughton and Joe Gannum. So what's that? You've, I've done Boughton. 
Uh, got but everybody besides Ganem. Oh, Ganem's the only one. All right. So that's pretty yeah. amazing. Five Republican candidates uh, and plus Ned Lamont. Um, first of all, can you describe what spurs your interest in this? Why, why have you decided to become the person that you currently are? Yeah, so just as a kid, I was always just intrigued with the news. I always watched the news in the morning, read the papers, uh, went online, looked at the news. And I, was, I just really wanted to get involved some way. So I started up this website. I was thinking of doing a podcast, but then I transitioned it into an interview show. And then I just um, emailed Demis Claritis, got her an interview with her. And that it just really shot up from there. And I just become so intrigued with the political system, especially here in Connecticut. And this governor's race is very exciting. Right. It's, it's, anybody, it's an open race. Right. So we've got these five candidates. Um, Wolfie, I'm going to go to A3 here. I'm just going to uh, get play a little bit of uh, Ryan talking to candidate Robert Bob Stefanowski. Bob Stefanowski is a former business executive. He's gotten into the race. He's using um, his own money as opposed to the Citizens Election Program, which provides public grants to uh, at least, the, well, I, ideally three of the other Republican candidates. Uh, and uh, he had to petition his way on to the ballot. He didn't really participate in the state convention. Here's Ryan uh, talking to Stefanowski. I'm proud of my success. I'm not going to run from it. More people People like you, more people should have the opportunity at a young age to do what I, say, what I was able to do in this state. Yeah, but don't you think having the Citizens Election Program opens up uh, more opportunities for people that don't maybe, maybe can't self-finance their campaign? I think there's other ways to do it. We're the only state in the entire nation that provides the kind of financing at the levels that we do to career politicians to run for office. I agree with a level playing field, but giving people that kind of money with a blank check is absolutely the, the essence of hypocrisy. I don't know how they get comfortable doing it. So will you try to eliminate that if you become governor? Absolutely. I'm okay with it for the state legislator. Yeah, they're part-time roles, and it's not a ton of money. It's a lot of money, but it's not a ton. Uh, but to do it at the governor level, that's why you've got so many candidates. That's why you have all these candidates, because if somebody else is paying for it, why not run? All right. Ryan, you're good at this. I mean, you ask good follow-up questions. You really listen to what the person is saying. Thank you. Um, so, um, yeah, so there, it, there is a five-person field in that race. Um, most of us who are looking at it, we can't really figure out how to handicap it. Uh, it does seem like the two rich guys who, who did signature campaigns, first of all, they didn't have to wait to get their money, and a signature campaign means that you're actually in touch with at least a certain group of voters who wind up writing down their names on a piece of paper that has your name on it. But other than that, I don't know. I, I, I've been covering politics for a really, really long time, and I— can't make head nor tails out of this thing. Do you feel like you have a, a grip on what's going to happen on August 14th? No, we really don't. Since there was five people running and, you know, you have, you have really three outsiders and two insiders. And, you know, you think it's the year of the outsider, but can, can one of those outsiders, like Semin, Stefanowski, and Obstinic, can they differentiate themselves? I don't think they are going to be able to. I think this is Boutin's race to lose. He got the endorsements. He's got his uh, citizens' election pro, um, money uh, all set. As well as Herbst, Upsitnik has a lot of issues right now with uh, his citizens' election program grants. So I think it's Batwin's race to lose, but it really is an open race. Um, this, speaking of Steve Absitnik, and once again, for people who haven't been paying attention, uh, Absitnik's another guy who made quite a bit of money in the private sector, but he decided to go a more conventional route, starting with the actual convention, uh, where he uh, got enough votes easily uh, to uh, proceed on to the primary ballot. Uh, but now, as Ryan is saying, he needs that public grant. He needs the public grant. It's over a million dollars because he's agreed not to use private monies uh, to do this, and he's stalled. He's, he alone is stuck in a 
a sort of non-qualifying yeah. position. And plus, there's some questions about independent expenditures being made on his behalf. But I want to go to your interview with him, Ryan, uh, because uh, it's also interesting. Uh, one of the things I think you've discovered is trying to figure out who the person is as a person. So let's hear you talking. This is A4 Wolfie to Steve Obsitnik. I want to finish up with some personal questions. Do you have any hobbies? I do, um, you know, I guess this has become my hobby and my passion, uh, running for running for office here. I do uh, you know, try to work out, run, uh, yoga, yeah. things like that for my spare time. Spending time with my daughters is, I guess, a hobby too. Okay, I'm really going to put you in the hot seat right now. Connecticut is really well known for its pizza places. Do you have a favorite place in the yes. state? Yes. Stanford, Mario the Baker. Yep. I've been going there ever since I was uh, in sixth grade. So, Tommy, you should check it out down there. Check out Tommy down at Stanford and Mario and the Baker. Peppies or Sally's? Um, probably more. It depends on the mood, but I probably would go Sally more often than mm. Sally's and I would do Peppies. Yes, I agree. All right. Well, there's also modern, too, uh, and there's mm -hmm. less less of a weight. Um, so, um, That's what Stefanowski said. <laughs> oh, it does, oh God! I don't want to be. Uh, I don't. I don't want to be the same about pizza with Bob Stefanowski. But it, that, that's so. But it's an interesting thing that you're doing, right? Because people who run for office, they have some fairly well crafted, maybe even focus grouped or market tested responses to questions about uh, taxation and criminal justice reform and transportation. But you can't hide who you are. So I don't know. As you've talked to these people, you've talked to Ned Lamont, you've talked to uh, these five Republican candidates for governor. I mean, I don't know who jumps out at you as a person you feel like you've got to know a little bit better through that technique you use. I think something that really stuck out is Ned Lamont. He's very personable, very approachable. I, I, I thought he was uh, extremely nice to me. And um, you know, whatever, whatever you think about his politics, I think you could, can't argue that he's a very nice person. So are all the other people. Um, Mark Bowen's very nice. Steve Upstitnik especially. Uh, he's really uh, outgoing. I think he's someone that you'd want to go up and talk to. I mean, when you look at these puffs, most of the time you just hear these people on TV talking policy. But what I like to do at the end of my interviews is ask them a few personal questions so you get to know really who these people are. Um, and how did you come up with the pizza question? Uh, well, Connecticut, you know, has the best pizza anywhere. So I wanted to see uh, where uh, what people's favorite places are. So one of the things that uh, people have brought up, Ryan, is that when you really look at the field, when you look at the gubernatorial field, uh, we really are down to seven white males. Uh, there's some interesting things going on, jockeying for position at the lieutenant governor line and in some of the other races and the congressional races. I don't know. How does that diversity question look to you? Do you think it's a meaningful one, one that each party needs to struggle with? I think diversity is definitely something that needs to be looked at, especially here. You have Joe Gannon who's saying... We need diversity. Dan Lamont and Joe Gann think that we need more diversity here. I mean, there's two white men running there. They, Dan Lamont basically kicked out Susan Bicewitz out of the race. I think there's definitely a diversity issue on both sides, as you can see, seven white men running. Um, one of the things that I've been struggling with, I mean, there, there, this is a tough race, a tough electoral season or primary season for uh, another reason, which is I don't have any data. We don't have any really good polling. There's no yeah. Quinnipiac poll out there. There's, And I have obviously lots of questions about who's doing well among the candidates and what issues are are driving people's votes. And that's something that a good, a good poll will tell you. But the first question that I have, and I don't have an answer to it, is how aware of the, the electoral realities are people? I mean, I feel like there's a percentage of the Connecticut electorate that, for example, doesn't know that Dan Malloy isn't running again. Or, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who don't know basic things. I don't know. I, I mean, you talk to a lot of people. What's your take on this? 
Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, people like us, we're political junkies. We follow this all the way, but an average person has no idea who Joe Gannon, Ned Lamont, and Bob Stefanowski are. I mean, this is really, if you can get your name out there, Bob Stefanowski is doing a pretty good job at that with the television advertisements. He may have a chance. Either People aren't really looking at the policy. David Stemmerman has put out some plans, but people aren't really looking at that. That's why name recognition is going to be important here in television advertising and other advertisements. Um, well, listen, Ryan, I, I want you to, to see if you can run up to the dining hall there at camp and uh, get some lunch. But I also want you to be in touch with me uh, because we're going to do, be doing primary night coverage here on August 14th. I know you're back yeah. from camp by then. Don't accept any offers from Mark Davis until you talk to me. All right. Uh, have your people right. talk to me before you promise Mark Davis anything. And that's just good advice generally. I mean, that's just a <laughs> good uh, life advice. But uh, people who want to uh, see your work should uh, check out Raving Ryan. It's pretty easy to find. Website about Connecticut politics by our 15-year-old guest, Ryan Anastasio. Hey, thanks for doing this, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me, Colin. All right. Uh, I feel like this is the week for discovering young people. I mean, we have it's a Star is Born week. I mean, we had Zandra Ellen yesterday on the Song of the Summer show. And now we got Ryan. Um, I feel old, but I also feel useful, you know, just sort of lifting up the young people uh, and uh, letting them see all the glories that uh, that await them <laughs> uh, in a career in, in the Connecticut media. All right. So we're going to take a break. When we come back. We're going to do some math, but I, don't be scared, all right? I'm not scared, so you shouldn't be scared either. We're going to look at the mathematics of elections and why so often we don't get a winner who reflects the preferences of the majority. It's time for brand new bums. I know you just want to tax my home. I know you just want to tap my phone. I know you just won't leave me alone, so I vote. Are you planning to vote in the Connecticut's August primary, Sarah? I am not planning to vote. And why not? I wasn't aware of the primaries or when they were or any details about what's going on in them. I think that's why, because I'm underinformed, so I feel like I shouldn't be voting if I don't know enough about it. What would make it easier for you to vote in the primary? If the, uh, if the primaries were open to both parties, as it is, I'm an independent and I have to become a Democrat to vote against uh, you know, the worst candidates. I, I mean, as a, as a college student, I don't really feel like there's a direct, that much information about exactly the steps that you need to take. And maybe that sounds silly, but um, like for me, I wouldn't even know exactly like where to go. I know they do it at school sometimes, but gotcha. and exactly what you like need to obtain that type of thing. I mean, the process to know how to register and uh, who are your local candidates. I mean, that doesn't come out very clearly. And uh, once that is known, I think in their agenda, I think it becomes easier for us to vote. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that should give you. That's by, that's our intern Jason Paris. Uh, great job, uh, and I think we have a pretty good sense of what, what some of the challenges are out there. Uh, but there's another challenge, and that is simply figuring out a way to count the votes so that uh, the person who wins does reflect the actual preferences of the majority. There's a reason that we often refer to politics uh, in terms of horse races, covering the horse race, because there are some similarities, right? I mean, we have five candidates seeking the uh, gubernatorial nomination on the Republican side. We here in Connecticut don't have a better way of sorting them out than really you would at a derby, right? It's whoever <laughs> sticks his nose over the line first. Uh, and that's about it. Uh, and in the 
case of Connecticut, just to sort of set the stage here before we bring the guest aboard, so there's going to be about 100,000 people voting in the Republican primary. Don't ask me how I know this. I know this. Um, But 100,000 people are going to vote. There are five candidates right now, although one of the five, Steve Obsitnik, is in a lot of trouble right now just in terms of getting enough money, and he's just got problems. He he may drop into the single digits. But that wasn't how it looked a week ago. A week ago, they all looked kind of just about equally strong. So you really could imagine a scenario where with 30,000 votes, you get the Republican nomination, one of the two major party nominations, to then run in a general election where a million votes will be cast. So maybe not a good way for the Republicans to make sure they have a popular candidate. So what do you do about these things? This comes up all the time, comes up with uh, national presidential elections, too. Joining us now is Christoph Borgers, uh, professor of mathematics at Tufts University and the author of Mathematics of Social Choice, Voting, Compensation, and Division. Welcome to our uh, conversation, sir. Uh, Hi, Colin. Thank you very much for having me on. So let's take a look at this. I mean, first of all, it's not uh, well, let's start with the scenario that I described. So we have five uh, candidates seeking one nomination. They're all just dropped into a pool here in Connecticut. And whoever gets the most votes, no matter how few votes that actually is, the most votes, the the plurality wins is is first of all, is that an okay way to, to choose a candidate? Yeah, you're quite right that the more candidates there are, the more absurd does plurality voting become. Mm. It's already a bad method when you have three candidates. Mm -hmm. Even when you have two very strong candidates and one weak candidate, it's a bad method. But it's an absurd method when you have five candidates. Well, let's talk about when you have three candidates. So we know lots of instances of this. Uh, The one that always jumps out to me is in 1992, Bill Clinton won with 43% of the vote because of Ross Perot. You can go back to 1968, where essentially the same thing happened. That time, Nixon had 43.4% of the popular vote, only 0.7 better than Hubert Humphrey. However, he won by a much bigger margin in the Electoral College. So in a way... Um, uh, we have several different problems here, right? We have uh, the whole question of how you count votes, how you allocate votes. And we also have the problem in America of the Electoral College, which in some ways is its own set of issues, right? Yes, the Electoral College is definitely a separate set of issues. And I frankly personally wish there were no Electoral College. But even if we don't touch that issue, uh, the question is how should states decide which candidate to vote for in the Electoral College? And that's usually done or universally done with plurality voting. And I think it's a bad idea. There are many examples. You mentioned some um, that illustrate why that's a bad idea. Another example, of course, is the presidential election in 2000 in Florida, where Bush won by, by the official tally, Bush won by 537 votes over Al Gore. And at the same time, Ralph Nader had, I just looked this up yesterday, over 97,000 votes in Florida Mm -hmm. that year. And it's a fair guess that many of those would have preferred Al Gore to George Bush. So it's a fair guess that in a one-on-one election between Al Gore and George Bush, Al Gore would have won Florida and thereby Al Gore would have been the president in 2000. So there are different ways to think about this. Um, maybe we should go back in time to the Marquis de Condorcet, uh, who's one of the people who thought uh, mathematically uh, about how you should vote. What was, what was his central premise? Yeah, so um, Condorcet's idea was that um, if we have two candidates, X and Y, 
And if we know that in a one-on-one election, just with two people on the ballot, X would beat Y, then why shouldn't win the election if we can help it? And we have to say if we can help it, because there are situations in which that criterion would rule out every single candidate. But often there is one candidate who would win every one-on-one contest against any of the other candidates, and we call that candidate the Condorcet candidate. So often there is a Condorcet candidate, usually there is a Condorcet candidate, not always is there a Condorcet candidate. And so Condorcet's idea was, if there is a Condorcet candidate, that candidate should win. For example, in Florida in 2000, there seems to be fairly little doubt that Al Gore was a Condorcet candidate. Now, I have to say, one has to take that with a grain of salt, because people will say, and I think rightly, that the presence of Ralph Nader brought people to, uh, uh, to vote who wouldn't have voted otherwise, and so on. So there are complications here. It's not entirely clear-cut. But probably Al Gore was a Condorcet candidate in that election. So we also saw during the primaries of 2016 uh, on the Republican side uh, that multiplicity system that we're talking about here in Connecticut right now. You have a lot of candidates. And so you have Donald Trump winning, say, Arkansas with, I think, either 31 or 33 percent of the Arkansas vote. So what's the better? Let's take something like that. What's the better way to do that? If you're not going to go with plurality, uh, what are you going to go with? So uh, this question has, of course, been extensively studied, and uh, many different ways of voting have been proposed and analyzed, and one of the central results in this field is that there is no ideal way of voting, and there's a mathematically precise version of that statement. Um, uh, But uh, many of the good voting methods that people have proposed uh, are based on asking voters not to name their favorite candidate only, but to rank the candidates. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the question becomes, after the voters rank the candidates, what do we do with that? Uh, And I think um, one important criterion here is simplicity. We want a simple system because we don't want to have an electoral system where people have to just trust somebody that they will do the calculation correctly. They should understand what's going on, and they won't approve it anyway if they don't understand what's going on. So... um, Among methods that are based on ranking candidates, uh, two have been advocated uh, recently as um, methods to replace plurality voting. One is called instant runoff voting, and I can go into how that works. Yeah, let's let's, let's walk through that. I think that one's fairly easy to understand, but let's give it a try. Yes. So instant runoff voting means we first look at who has the fewest, uh, so every voter ranks the candidates, and then we look at who is um, mentioned as the top choice least often. And that candidate will be eliminated. And for the voters who rank that candidate as their top choice, their top choice, their new top choice now becomes their second ranked candidate. Mm -hmm. And then we do the same thing again. We look at who now gets mentioned as the top choice least often. We eliminate that candidate. And we keep going until only one candidate is left standing. Um, So that's instant runoff. Uh, It's done. It's instant because we only have to ask the voters to once rank all the candidates. We don't have to ask them to come back for a runoff election. And then we can do this calculation. 
that's the instant runoff method, and that's been advocated by various progressive organizations um, recently. It was the um, uh, method that was approved in the ballot initiative in Maine in 2016, and in various places it's been used in San Francisco. It was used in Burlington, Vermont, to elect the mayor. Um, so that's instant runoff. That's okay. one possibility. Okay, now what's the other possibility? Um, uh, so I think among uh, methods that have been advocated politically, instant runoff is probably the most common proposal. I have to say, I am not entirely convinced that it's the best possibility. There is another uh, thing to do, uh, which some people who have advocated it call majority rule, and that is to simply uh, respect Condorcet's principle. Instant runoff doesn't do that. It doesn't respect Condorcet's principle. But uh, the proposal is if there is a Condorcet candidate, so if there is a candidate who in one-on-one election would beat every other candidate, then we're going to make that candidate the winner. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we have to decide what if there is no Condorcet candidate. Um, So um, we have to... uh, I can talk about what I would like to do then. But in a sense, that's a secondary question. The Mm -hmm. first uh, step is to determine whether there is a Condorcet candidate. And if there is a Condorcet candidate, there can never be more than one Condorcet candidate. That's the winner. So uh, just uh, once again, uh, and to help people understand, and maybe getting down to um, a a specific example would help. So in in the 2009 mayoral race in Burlington, Vermont, the used instant runoff, that did not deliver the win, the victory, to the Condorcet candidate. That was a candidate, uh, uh, Andy Montrell, I think, who in one-on-one matchups would have beaten anybody. Correct. Uh, and we, we know this because we know the rankings that people submitted, yes. Right. But because of the way instant runoff works, it actually weights a, a different set uh, of, of numbers. Uh, and so that candidate didn't win. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> The more I talk about this, the more confused I get, even about what I think about it. So, um, because I mean, I think one of the things we want to do is do something better than the plurality system. But, but I, I, here's where I want to go. One of the issues here, I think, is the word complicated or the word simple. So, um, ranked voting, in terms of what you have to do as a voter, is actually very simple. You get a ballot. You color in your first choice. You color in your second choice. You color right. in your third choice. That's really easy to do. It doesn't ask much of the voter. The cool. part that's complicated is when the voter needs to understand what was done with that data, right? How the, how that data set was processed. If the voter doesn't understand it or doesn't have confidence in it or feels afterward as though his or her choices didn't really play out the way he or she would have guessed because of a failure to understand how that information was going to be used in vote counting. That's where simplicity and complexity come up, right? It's not what the voter has to do. It's what the voter has to subsequently understand. Precisely. Now, I have to say uh, methods like instant runoff and um, uh, the notion of a Condorcet candidate, those things strike me as not excessively hard to understand. They are certainly, to me, much easier than the rules of baseball, let's say. So, <laughs> and most people understand the rules of baseball. Uh, so, um, so it seems that's not really 
that shouldn't be an obstacle to introducing one of these methods as the voting method. But one has to stick with a simple one. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, on the other hand, okay, so part of the problem is people may watch as many as 162 baseball games or more every year, uh, year after year after year. Voting is something which they do much more uh, occasionally. Uh, and, and as a result, I mean, they may master the intricacies of baseball by daily exposure, but they don't have daily exposure to this. And it's also difficult, I think, to get people to change. Change makes people nervous. This may be a stupid system that we have right now, but for the most part, people understand it. Although maybe you would quarrel with that. Maybe you would say, well, they don't really understand it. And that's why in 2000 and in 2016, people kind of flip out when they find out that the winner of the overall popular vote is not going to be the president. Yes. Uh, So I think um, the reason why plurality voting is really, or the reasons, there are multiple reasons why plurality voting is not such a good idea, that's probably, you're right, that's probably not so widely understood. Um, Let me mention one other way of looking at it. I think um, one flaw of plurality voting is that uh, being really despised by many voters, even by the majority of voters, does not get penalized by plurality voting. (laughs) You can be the uh, favorite candidate of 35% of the electorate and you can be despised by 65% of the electorate. If there are five candidates, you're likely to win. And so I think that's a flaw of plurality voting. Democracy should be about making compromises, making compromises between different points of view. And it should be difficult for someone whom the majority, a large majority, despises to be elected. Right. Um, I can't imagine who you're thinking about. But um, the um, but well, I mean, another way to think about this is that it, in multi-candidate scenarios, it rewards extremism, too. I mean, game theory kind of says, well, if there's five candidates, you probably are rewarded for staking out the, the most extreme position in some direction or another. In other words, yeah. what you what you want to make everybody else fight over a kind of moderate middle vote, split that up while you take the the biggest chunk you can of an extreme position where you don't have to compete with anybody else. Yes. And I think, yeah, go ahead. I think that's very similar to what I was saying. Exactly yeah. that's what I was uh, getting at, that uh, uh, being an extremist gets rewarded in plurality voting. Now, I have to say, with instant runoff, um, uh, that's no longer possible. You cannot be despised by the majority of voters and still win because in the end, you'll have to beat one person. In the end, it'll come down to two people. And if you're going to win, you're going to have to win that last contest. If you're despised by the majority, you won't win that last contest. So instant runoff fixes that problem. Um, In my view, it's still, um, we're still left with problems. One of those problems is that the one that you mentioned, namely uh, a compromise candidate still can uncomfortably easily lose. And the Burlington 2009 uh, election is an illustration of that. You might say Andy Montrol was a compromise candidate there. He would have beaten any of the others in one-to-one contest, but he lost. Um, uh, Also, spoilers are still possible in instant runoff. It's easy to construct examples of spoilers. Uh, So uh, a, a candidate might have very few first-place votes, 
but a lot of second-place votes, mm -hmm. and that might very well be the reasonable candidate to elect, but the second-place votes won't do that candidate any good if they are eliminated on the first round. So. Right. All right. So uh, we've shed some light on this question and perhaps also a little bit more confusion or at least um, the confusion that comes from a lot of different choices for how to do something. We're going to kind of narrow down on this a little bit. I will say that one thing that I do think about at this time of year, when I think about the way we vote in America, about the Electoral College, about the fact that one of the reasons we cling so much to a two-party system is that if, a, if no candidate gets more than 50 percent of the electoral votes, we've got another set of problems here, something else that's wired into our Constitution. They can throw the election into the House of Representatives. And the reason we have all these problems is because our Constitution was drafted in secret by 55 white men who were drinking the entire time. Um, <laughs> and it looks like it. It reads I like it. I didn't know that. Yes, no, absolutely. It, is, it was a problem. That's The water wasn't good back then. All right. So we're going to take a little break here. Thanks so much to Christoph Borgers, uh, professor of mathematics at Tufts University and the author of Mathematics of Social Choice, Voting, Compensation, and Division. Now we're going to head out when we come back to Maine and Colorado, where they really are. They do have the courage there to try something different. In any direction, not just a projection, but vote to get someone good into office. Vote to get suckers out of office. Vote for any reason at all. Betsy Kaplan received the most first-place votes for producer of this show, but I received more second- and third-place votes. So Amanda Fish produced today's episode. Our intern is Jason Perez, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Hubert Humphrey. On tomorrow's show, The Nose discusses an oral history of John and Lorena Bobbitt. And now, back to Colin. I'll just quickly tell you, if you're listening here on Thursday, our, our Friday show will... In fact, it's the 20th, 25th anniversary of John and Lorena Bobbitt. And believe me, if you think you remember the details, you've forgotten them. Uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about uh, ESPN's body issue. That's where athletes post, post nude, including two UConn women's legends, uh, Brianna Stewart and Sue Bird. And, of course, there's something about Sue Bird's picture that uh, makes it also very, very special. So we'll talk about that. And we're also we've all read a novel called The Power by Naomi Alderman about women who can jolt men with electricity and how that changes the world. All right. So we're back uh, talking about how to vote and whether or not there's a better way to vote than the way that we've been doing it for a really long time. Well, some people talk about it and some states do it. The state of Maine is doing it. Joining us right now is Seth Maskett, professor of political science and director of the Center on American Poli— Oh, no, wait a minute. I've got it backwards. <laughs> this is Steve Missler. They have very similar names, I have to say. Um, Steve uh, Missler, uh, chief political correspondent uh, and State House bureau chief at Maine Public. Uh, sorry about that. So um, let's take a look at this. I mean, you, there's something very unusual happening in Maine. First of all, there was a lot of jockeying about whether you were, in fact, going to have this system, when this system was going to implement, be implemented. But essentially, the way that it was done, I guess, was that you did your instant runoff system and voted on whether to do an instant runoff system, kind of all in one big gulp. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So on, on primary day, there was a there was we actually had the first, the nation's first uh statewide uh ranked choice voting or instant runoff voting election and at the very same time that voters here were testing test driving it they were basically deciding whether or not they wanted to keep it and that was a that was a, they had to basically answer a separate ballot question which was a people's veto of the legislature's attempt to delay implementation of that law and repeal it eventually so um the voters did decide to keep it. Uh, they did 
uh, try it out on uh, on primary day, um, and there was some delay in the in the reporting of, of results, on, at least in the Democratic gubernatorial primary and a congressional race. But we also had a winner on election night because that person, uh, the Republican gubernatorial nominee, um, won with an outright majority, which is the whole point of ranked choice voting is to achieve a majority and not just win with a plurality or first past the post, as they often call it. Right. So uh, and in a way, this well, I was talking before to the mathematician uh, Christian uh, Christoph Borgers about the fact that um, simplicity works a couple of different ways. Like the way that you guys voted this time, it's pretty simple to vote this way. You color in your first choice, you color in your second choice, et cetera. Um, The question is, do you understand what happens next? Will you be comfortable with and understand what happens when the votes are counted? Now, in a way, you guys kind of get sort of a free pass on this because the thing that makes instant runoff uh, interesting, complicated, and potentially troubling to some people kind of didn't happen, right? As you said, somebody just got a majority right away. Yeah, one side did, the the Republican gubernatorial nominee, but the Democrats actually had to wait, and they had to wait eight days. And, you know, you're talking about, I think you're referring to the the, sort of the logarithm that's used during the runoff process in which basically the calculations are essentially plugged into uh, a computer. So all the ballots and each voter's multiple choices are scanned into a computer, and then it does a tabulation that takes approximately 15 to 20 minutes, and then spits out a result, and you're also, and everybody just sort of says, oh, okay, that person won or that person came in second. Um, so you're, you are leaving a little bit of... Um, you're trusting a little bit in a system that you may not understand if you're just, you know, a regular off-the-street voter who doesn't necessarily understand the logarithm or how it works. But that is essentially what happened, and it, you know, there was a lot of drama associated with it because, again, it was the it was it was our first go at it, and people really didn't know what to expect. Um, and it, you know, the campaigns were interesting too. But I'll, you know, you might have some other questions about the the process, but. Either way, I'm here to answer them. Right. Well, I guess one thing that is important to emphasize is that as this whole idea was initially rolled out in Maine, Republicans were maybe a little lukewarm about it, and then they decided that they hated it. Uh, right. I heard how, what happened there. Like, what was that process? Well, they hated it for a bunch of reasons. I mean, and one of them was that the Democrats grew to love it, and that one of the reasons. So, ranked choice voting had been kicked around in the legislature for probably. I don't know, the last decade, if not longer. But it really didn't gain support, um, in, not just in the legislature, but just among activists, um, until the election of Governor Paula Page. He's a conservative firebrand who won with a narrow plurality back in 2010. And, you know, he was real, he's a very polarizing figure. Um, you know, some refer to him as a base governor in the sense that he doesn't really seek consensus or coalitions. And, you know, he has no problem uh, upsetting his opponents or calling them out on it. And I think his he's really changed the political landscape here and arguably uh, gave rise to this uh, rarely used system that's used in places like Australia and a handful of uh, municipalities. And it's because, you know, voters here, particularly the center-left electorate, was so um, traumatized, if you will, by the fact that there were multiple candidates in the 2010 race, and the center-left electorate was split, which arguably paved the way for Governor LePage to win his first election. 
and then back in, and then in four years later, he won again, even though there wasn't as much of a split in the center-left electorate. Um, but there was so much fear over a split. There was basically a virtual primary contest between the independent in the race and the Democrat in the race, where they were basically pulling each other farther and farther left, which allowed Page to get more, LePage to get more votes than he ever did the first time. So that was that was the birth of frank choice voting, and Democrats, including the main Democratic Party, uh, grew to embrace this system. And um, some activist groups aligned with the party actually helped get it on the ballot in 2016, and um, in which voters approved it. So that's sort of the genesis of this. And as you mentioned, Republicans grew to hate it because, not that they ever liked it in the first place, but they saw in ranked choice voting um, their path, to, uh, a path for conservative governors like LePage, would be shut off if uh, ranked choice voting were the election system that was used in statewide races. Right. So we should talk a little bit more about that, too. So you had uh, both uh, a sample uh, primary election um, and at the same time, as we said, a, a vote on the system itself. So the, the, uh, they overwhelmingly seem to embrace the system itself in the vote. So what happens now? When does this get used in the general election? Does it get used this November or is there a timetable? Well, so that's a little bit tricky, but it will be used in uh, congressional contests, but it will not be used in, in, the next, in the general election for the governor's race or legislative races. And that's because the system actually, the main Supreme Court uh, issued an advisory opinion last year that said um, ranked choice voting actually violates uh, a, a part of the con- main constitution that says that gubernatorial and legislative races must be decided by a plurality. It's actually written in our Constitution. But, you know, the reason why we're able to use it in the primary is that the Constitution doesn't address primary contests because they're basically party functions Mm -hmm. that the state administers. So that's why we're able to use it. But that also means that we won't be able to use it uh, in November unless, of course, the legislature... Well, we won't be able to use it in November no matter what, but Mm -hmm. in future elections it might be used if the legislature can send a constitutional amendment out to voters to allow it to be used in general elections. Um, and so far, that's not, that hasn't happened, and that's because Republicans have blocked that, sending that constitutional amendment to voters. All right. So, uh, to be continued, uh, Paul LePage is term limited. The one thing we know is that he won't be uh, the governor uh, next year. Uh, thanks so much to Steve Missler, chief uh, political correspondent and State House Bureau Chief at Maine Public Radio. Uh, we are now going to switch gears here uh, and also switch locales and uh, head out, metaphorically speaking, to Colorado, uh, where they're tr- they are doing a different kind of experiment. Uh, we're talking now to Seth Maskett, professor of political science and director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. Welcome to our show, sir. Hi, thank you for having me on. So uh, you're in the middle of something uh, very, very different. This is something that comes up a lot. One of our uh, new producers here at this station, uh, a young woman from Tennessee, was saying the other day that she's not uh, affiliated with the party. She realizes we have a pretty exciting primary coming up in August. She can't vote in it. Uh, This is, and and that's not the way it is back home where she lives. So Colorado is trying something different. What is it that you guys are trying? So, yeah, just starting this year in this primary, uh, we are allowing um, unaffiliated voters, basically independent voters, who chose not to choose a party when they registered to vote. Uh, for the first time, we're allowing them to participate in the primary. Um, what makes this uh, 
unusual um, is that we conduct an all mail-in vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, unaffiliated voters, uh, most of them received both major parties' ballots in the mail, and they could choose one, fill it out, and send it back in. And if it's one of those things where if you send back both ballots, uh, that that invalidates both of them. They're both spoiled ballots at that point. Um, this whole idea, though, so you have two ways of doing this. You can either, uh, if you're an unaffiliated voter, you can order the ballot that you want. You can say, I want the Republican ballot or, or I want the Democratic ballot, or they'll send you both. And as you say, you could just send in one. And, and I assume this is partly to boost participation. I mean, here in Connecticut, uh, because the Republican Party is not very big, we'll have about 100,000 people voting in the August primary, you know, and maybe a million people voting in the general election. So because we have the same rule, you can't vote unless you're a Republican. Republican. Uh, I, I assume Colorado just wants to get more people involved. Yeah, and I, I think this was this was really driven. I mean, this was done uh, through a state ballot initiative two years ago, and, and it was really driven a lot by these unaffiliated voters, um, which you know we have a pretty large percentage of them in Colorado. They're more than a third of the electorate. The biggest biggest party registration uh, is is no party at all. Um, in Colorado, it's about 36%. And many of them have uh, felt for years uh, that they want to participate in, in the primaries. They don't want to affiliate with the party. Um, but the, once in a while, there will be a, a race for governor or for senator for something like that that they really want to, they want to weigh in on. Um, and so they, they were looking for a way to, to access the, the primary. So how did it work? I mean, do you know yet? Do you have a sense of whether you got more people involved? Yeah, I've been uh, you know, looking at the numbers so far. They're still being tabulated by the, uh, the, the Secretary of State's office. It looks like uh, the unaffiliated uh, voters participated at about half the rate of partisans. So, uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans, if, if you look at just like the percentage of active voters who, who call themselves Democrats and Republicans, roughly 40 percent of those turned out for this year. Uh, which is relatively high for a midterm primary, uh, around 20% of unaffiliated uh, voters turned out to vote. Uh, obviously, that's a lot more than could participate before, which was zero. Um, but it's also, you know, uh, you know, nowhere near the rate that uh, the partisans are voting at. So there's a way in which I have a bunch of questions about this, but there's a way in which this process, this so-called semi-closed process, it kind of burps up a piece of information that would be interesting to a political consultant, and that would be what the lean is on unaffiliated voters. By the way, we're similar here in Connecticut. The ratio of unaffiliated voters to Democratic voters to Republican voters is about eight to seven to four, I think. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you really want to know as much as you can about those unaffiliated voters because they tip elections, um, and and so if if you know which way they went, if, that they, if they were more interested in participating in the Democratic one than the Republican one or vice versa in terms of the primaries, that's interesting knowledge. Is there like a, a, a scramble to get that information? Yeah, and that, and that information is, you know, or will be publicly available. It'll be part of the voter rolls. Um, so, you know, consultants and, and other and campaigns and other groups will be able to access that information. Um, and it's, you know, we're... I don't think anyone's 100% certain what it means, um, you know, that someone picked, uh, you know, that, that a voter who's unaffiliated with the party sent back the Democratic ballot versus the Republican ballot. I mean, that could mean that they lean Democratic mm-hmm. um, and are more interested in that party and will probably vote Democratic in the fall. It could also mean they just thought the Democratic primary was a more interesting contest and they wanted to uh, cast a vote in that one. It could be that, you know, 
the Democratic contest in their own congressional district was competitive and there was nothing going on on the Republican side. Um, so there's a couple of different things it could mean, but it, uh, it, I've just, you know, playing with some numbers right now, and it looks like, you know, you saw more people return the Democratic ballot in more Democratic counties. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, which suggests, okay, this probably is some indicator of partisanship. And, yeah, that's that's obviously very useful information to uh, to campaigns who want to know, you know, this this huge chunk of, of unaffiliated voters out there who want to know how some of these people lean and um, if they, you know, if, if they send them some campaign information, if they knock on their door, are they, you know, they'd likely to get a warm response or a cold one. Right. Or if, God forbid, they do a Facebook ad that will only be read by certain people. They want to know which people uh, they should have a look at that Facebook ad. All right. We're going to have to stop there. This is really interesting stuff, though. Uh, Thanks very much to Seth Maskett, professor, professor of political science and director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. Thanks to everybody else who helped out with this show. A special thanks to Betsy Kaplan, who figured out how to make it work, and uh, Kion Wolf, who figured out how to make the board run. We're going to continue to cover all of this political stuff, not to a point where or, you know, tears streamed on your face or anything like that. And we will be, we've been planning this for a while, we will be on the air on the night of August 14th. That is when Connecticut's primary is. People who talk to Jason Perez, August 14th. You can only vote in it if you're affiliated with one of the two major political parties. You cannot vote any other way. But anyway, we will be on the air probably from 7 to 9 that night uh, with John Dankosky and me. Uh, We'll be hosting and we'll have all kinds of experts out there in the field and Maybe Ryan Anastasio. I don't know. He may charge a lot of money for this. I'm not sure.